If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. We're pleased to bring you a special summer offer from our sister magazines. You can try three issues of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed for just £5. That's a saving of up to 72% off the shop price. Plus, you'll receive free UK delivery on each issue. To find out more and take advantage of this offer, visit our official online store, buysubscriptions.com slash podcast 2021. If you're based in the US, you also won't miss out. You can try three issues for just $9.95, saving a huge 70%. For more details, visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash podcast 2021. Please be aware that both these offers end on the 31st of August 2021. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the 16th century, the city of Antwerp was a global centre of commerce, trade, knowledge and innovation, plus one of scandal, murder, secrets and intrigue. Michael Pye has written a new history of the city, Antwerp, the glory years, or if you're based in the US, it's published there under the title Europe's Babylon. Our content director, David Musgrove, called him to find out more. Michael, um, so your book uh, is called in the UK Antwerp: The Glory Years, and in the uh, in the publisher's bump on the back of it, there's a little state that, uh, statement that says, uh, "Before Amsterdam, another North Sea city was the hub of the known world, Antwerp." So that's a pretty big claim, and we're going to explore why Antwerp mattered in the 16th century. But first off, can you please just orientate us a bit. Where is Antwerp geographically today and where did it sit in the political world in the 16th century? Antwerp is in Belgium. Um, Antwerp is a little way up a river, the River Scheldt, or just off the North Sea as it were. So it's a port. It's always been an important port. It still is a hugely important port. Um, and this is a town that was the target of German V2 rockets in World War II, was the first one, first place where civilians were bombed in World War I. You go back, Antwerp has always had a strategic importance. It's an important port. And in the 16th century, what sort of, what, what, what was its position there? What was the states around it and what was its role? No, oh, in the 16th century, it was much more than just an important port. It really was the hub of the world that Western Europe knew. And I say that not just because I'm saying Antwerp matters because I've written a book about it, but because that's what people at the time said. That's what diplomats said. That's what Venice, the great commercial power, said. Antwerp is the hub of the known world. So uh, Belgium it wasn't, a, wasn't a political entity in the 16th century. What, 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 was, what was Antwerp? You know, what, was its, what was its status? Where did it sit? Well, Antwerp was supposed to be part of the, the Habsburg dominions. So it was ruled from Spain. It had a whole empire overlooking it. But it was a broke empire, didn't have any money. And the only place it could get money reasonably cheaply was Antwerp. So Antwerp was in a very odd position. It looks like an imperial possession, but in fact, 
it almost possessed the empire in some ways. So, so who was in charge in the 16th century? Who ruled Antwerp? Who ruled Antwerp? Ah, well, that is a really interesting question. Antwerp thought that Antwerp ruled Antwerp, which was very controversial. Theoretically, it was ruled by the Habsburgs from Madrid. So you have emperors who insist, who come to town to be welcomed as the rulers of the place. But Antwerp just got on with it. I mean, Antwerp and the emperors, it's a wonderful story. Um, the emperor... Charles V really disapproved of heresy. He wanted to destroy heretics as much as possible. And Antwerp was absolutely seething with heretics. It was full of people who were traders from all over the, the well, I was going to say the world. In fact, that's true, but all over, certainly all over Europe. And many of them, for example, were Jews. Jews were particularly bad news to Charles V, who really disapproved of that kind of heresy. And he wanted to throw them out. But every time he tried, and he sent people from Brussels or Mechelen, the, the local headquarters of the empire, to, to get rid of them, there would be these little problems. So his, his ambassador would turn up in Antwerp and be told that, well, yes, the Margrave would really like to talk to him, but it was a, oh, it was a little difficult because the Margrave was not very well. Perhaps he could wait till the next morning. And then when he suggested that the next morning at six o'clock would be a good idea, he was told, well, yes, but we don't really want to do it that early in the morning, do we? It'll just alarm people. And finally, he got to meet some of the people he wanted to meet. I mean, this, remember, is the emissary from the emperor. And unfortunately, it wasn't possible to do anything on account of everybody having escaped in the um, 12 or 15 hours that Antwerp had arranged for them. And this just went on and on. I mean, this is a city that wanted to be its own city, not like the other cities up and down the North Sea, which, which had a lord they really obeyed or had been built around a monastery or a bishop or that kind of authority figure. Antwerp was trying to work out how a city could be a city in its own right, how it could rule itself. It wasn't always terribly good at it, but it was a very, very interesting experiment. So some of our listeners might be scratching their heads a bit and thinking, hang on, this, this place in Belgium is ruled from Spain. How, how did that happen? If, so if, if people aren't aware of that story, are you able to sort of very quickly condense it for us? What were the origins of the, of the city? How did it come to be ruled by the, by the Habsburgs? History of the Habsburg Empire. Yeah, right. The Habsburgs ruled because they conquered bit by bit the territory of what nowadays is Belgium and a bit of the Netherlands. They had by inheritance, an interest in Burgundy, which was what the territory had been called before, and they extended it steadily. And th that was how they had these enormous dynastic interests in the, in the Spanish Netherlands. And then beyond that, what, was, what were the countries around the Spanish Netherlands? We've got France, which was always a problem. France was constantly invading and actually put Antwerp under siege at one point. Um, you've got independent countries like Denmark and so on to the north. You've got bits and pieces of the Holy Roman Empire, which in theory was subject to the Habsburg Emperor at the time. Um, so those are the things that are really around the Spanish Netherlands. But you see, for Antwerp, that wasn't really the point. The point of Antwerp was that you simply got on a ship at the docks and you went anywhere in the world that you wanted to. And remember, this is the time when, when the world is opening up 
when suddenly there are the, the really good transoceanic routes that go to India, that go all the way down the coast of Africa, that go across to the Americas. And that's what Antwerp was connected to. So in a real sense, it was a, an international city and not just hemmed in by enemies on the frontiers. So, as you said, Antwerp becomes very important in the 16th century. Would I be right in saying that it, uh, its rise um, uh, mirrors the, the downfall, the decline of a nearby city of Bruges? You would be absolutely right. I mean, without the complete fall of Bruges, Antwerp might not have made it. We have one other bit of geography we have to do. Um, Flanders and Brabant, the two sort of territories side by side in the Spanish Netherlands. Flanders had been the one that actually got up the nose of the emperor in a really spectacular way. Uh, Brabant had been less so. Brabant had all sorts of deals, for example, with the English and their wool trade, which Flanders wouldn't do. So what you had in, in Antwerp, which was in Brabant, is a lot of friends that other territories didn't have and that Bruges in particular didn't have. And when Bruges really irritated the emperor, I mean, it's always a bad idea to, to, to actually imprison a would-be emperor, even in a very nice house on a main square in Bruges. And also, if you do do that, it's a very bad idea to have windows in the house that look out onto the place where you're actually executing some of his associates. It's not tactful at all. Anyway, Bruges was turned down and people moved out of Bruges. They had to. The other thing that happened, actually, is a much more basic rule of geography. The Scheldt has quite a current that goes up and down and really sweeps ships to the docks at Antwerp. Bruges, of course, never had a direct access like that. And its one little stream of water, as it were, which is what it became, was silting up steadily. So Bruges was always going to be isolated. And I think, um, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but from, from reading your book, it looks as if Antwerp played a, quite a canny hand by its use of fares. It was a brilliant idea. Uh, they had the advantage of being in Brabant, and their double advantage was that they could actually say, well, right, well, twice a year, we will have these enormous trade fairs, Antwerp and Bergopsom, um, and they worked extraordinarily well. And all of a sudden, of course, if people wanted to do business at those fairs, they had to come from Bruges and do all their money business in Antwerp. And all of those things began to change the balance of power between the two places. Then when finally the Portuguese moved out, because they couldn't stand imperial hostility anymore in Bruges, they took the whole spice trade to Antwerp. So, OK, so uh, Antwerp um, quite rapidly becomes a centre of global commerce. Um, what, so what sort, of, what sort of activities are going on in Antwerp uh, in the early 16th century? Activity? Well, um, you've got all of the Portuguese trade, which is spice, which is diamonds, which is gold in Africa, uh, which is, and also, I have to say, the Portuguese were buying in Antwerp all the things that they needed in order to buy slaves in Africa. Uh, they, the merchants came from Italy, they came from most of the major Italian city-states. They came from Spain, obviously enough, in the Spanish Netherlands. But they came from England. The merchant adventurers had a, a centre in, in Antwerp. So the activity is selling, buying and selling almost every imaginable thing. Because Antwerp was where you did the deals. It was where you did the exchanges. So the English would come in with large quantities of wool and wool and cloth. 
and they'd buy anything they could get. Antwerp was like their department store. They, they could buy wine, they could buy fish, they could buy anything, right up to the grandeur of metals and so on. So Antwerp is, is a, an emporium, as people kept saying, an emporium of the world. Think of it as a gigantic international version of Selfridges. And did I read correctly in your book that uh, it was something like nine-tenths of the English woollen uh, produce was going through Antwerp? It was all landed in Antwerp, yes, 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 yes. Um, but the other beauty of Antwerp, it had a very sensible rule, which was that you didn't actually have to unpack anything if you landed it in Antwerp, or indeed pay any taxes on it, or indeed do anything dull like putting it through customs. So if you landed in Antwerp, you simply put it on a cart or a boat or a barge and took it on to wherever it was going to. And that was a huge advantage. All of a sudden, there was no problem with, 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 with shipping on. Antwerp could be the place in the middle for everybody. So, so at what point does Antwerp become like the, the global centre then? Is there like a particular year or, or decade when it really comes to prominence in your view? You could say it was 1502 when the first Portuguese spice ships arrived because that threw the whole really important spice trade to Antwerp. Or you could argue it was later because what was happening year by year, decade by decade, was that people found Antwerp just really convenient. The South German miners who wanted to bring their minerals to sell could do the deals in Antwerp and pick up with the letters of credit all the, the goods that they needed from around the world, the stuff that was coming in from the Americas by way of Seville, from Africa by way of Lisbon, from India by way of Lisbon. So again, it was, it was the centre of things. It was the hub. So, so it's connecting all, all these different areas, connecting America, Asia, Europe... Um, Africa, the, the whole, basically the whole, as as the as the globe becomes more connected in the uh, uh, in as the as 16th century goes on, Antwerp is is a is a pivotal place. Absolutely, the pivotal place, um, and it's a, it's a very strange business because it's the history of that city because it's an astonishing city in that period somehow got lost along the way, and there's a good reason which is that at the end of the century, at the end of the 16th century, the Habsburgs were firmly back in control and they sat on the city and they imposed their own bureaucracy. They made the city only Catholic. The heretics were thrown out. And so we think of, of Antwerp as the city of Rubens and of that kind of art, that kind of diplomacy, that kind of imperial ambition. No, but it wasn't before that. In its glory days, it was the exact opposite. And unfortunately, in the meantime, a large number of mutinous troops in 1576 had managed to burn the upper stories of the town hall and burn its records. So you have a situation where reconstructing this wonderful history that everybody at the time was talking and writing about involves going for every kind of source you can find every novel that was being written, yes, there were novels being written, um, the pictures, the documents that you can find in, in, in archives from Zurich to Venice to, to, to Lisbon. Um, it's a matter of reconstructing a story that wasn't deliberately put away, but nevertheless was put away with enormous efficiency. 
we'll come back we'll come back to the to the end of the city's glory years in a bit and and you've done some really interesting investigative work as you said to to try and uh, find out what's what's going on but i just i just want to drill into a bit more in, into the into those glory years so you've you've described how it's an emporium for goods coming from all around the world uh, and being being centered into antwerp but was it a place of of innovation as well i'm thinking financial innovation were, were there financial products being developed as uh, alongside the commercial activities Huge because what you the real is the real surprise is that it was a hub of information as well, every kind of information, medical information, information about trade in different places. Obviously, um, all of these things were happening. So it was a city of spies because people wanted to find out what was happening. It was a city of doctors who wanted to find out the newest cures, but also how to use them. Because there's not much point in having an interesting dried root sitting in front of you if you don't actually know whether you're supposed to grind it or put it in water for 36 hours or whatever. Uh, you have to have the information. You have to have the theory, if you like. And the result is a place where everything is up for grabs. The merchants themselves of the scholars, very often, they, they don't see a distinction between the two things, although they sometimes get quite cross that business gets in the way of doing anything else. So unsurprisingly, it's a place where people innovate. But not surprisingly, when you've got a place which is so much the centre of information coming from everywhere, where nothing is to be taken for granted anymore, where the streets are full of spies, you've got a place where things start again. And if you've got a place where people don't have a literal market, I mean, you don't take a, in a cabbage and get money for it. If you've got a place where everything is theory in a way, because you've got people doing deals where the goods just aren't there or they're not going to come for a long time. There's, you know, it's a futures market, if you like. Of course, you get innovation. And more and more, you get a class of people who have come from somewhere else uh, operating in Antwerp. And everything to them is remote from the goods and the physical things and the physical trade. So all of a sudden, you've got a theoretical trade. You've got finance instead of markets. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Nobody saw the need to actually beat up people for having the wrong ideas in theology. And people were discreet enough, as they had to be, to, to, to go on with trade, because that was what mattered. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. So we're getting to a point where you, knowledge really is power in this situation then. Um, tell me about uh, Antwerp's role in the printing industry because it, uh, it takes quite a prominent role there, doesn't it? The Antwerp's in the printing industry is absolutely central. Uh, for a start, uh, if anybody wanted to learn another language, something like seven-eighths of all the language books published in Europe were published in Antwerp during the 16th century. But it was also a place where 
information came in fairly easily because Antwerp would never actually get round to prosecuting publishers for what they were doing, or if they did so, they didn't use major penalties. Antwerp never imposed the death penalty, for example, for publishing a heretical book. They banished people, which meant they sort of had to live a little bit outside the city for a bit, if they didn't mind. And that was about it. Um, so with that kind of freedom, with the trading which allowed new material to come in, and paper, most important, because paper was quite difficult at that point, and getting paper in from France needed the Antwerp docks, all of that meant that Antwerp became not just a printing and publishing centre, but a centre, a real city of information. If you wanted a sort of early equivalent of how the internet works now, the people being able to access the most surprising things, then it would be Antwerp. And I, and I think it, uh, in your book you also describe it as a city of teachers. Oh, it was. An incredible number of people actually worked as teachers. Uh, people went to Antwerp to learn languages because Antwerp was famous for speaking so many. It had to be, of course. I mean, a big trading city with people from all over. You have to learn other languages. Um, and teaching was the industry. And, te and teaching is fascinating because it teaches us in its own right, so much about what the society was really like. I mean, what did people think about the women of Antwerp who were famous? I mean, they were scandalous. People talked about the fact that you could tell dirty jokes in front of a woman. You could actually talk to a woman when her husband wasn't there, which really shocked the Italians who were used to keeping their daughters really safely locked up at home. And through the language books, we get a sense of this great desire to be sort of respectable, but not to go too far with it. And it goes back to the old statement about, about uh, Antwerp, which was various people, including the Venetian ambassadors, said, well, yeah, of course, uh, they are drunk all the time, which is rather a problem. But on the other hand, they've got a solution, which is that the men drink a great deal, which means the women do the business. He then pointed out that the women drank just as much, but there we are, they obviously had better heads. You've mentioned languages a couple of times. Um, was there a lingua franca that you needed to speak in Antwerp to be understood? Uh, and, and how many languages do you suppose were being, uh, were being touted on the streets? At least five or six, because you've got, you've got um, Netherlandish, as it would be called at the time, rather than Dutch. Uh, you've got French, of course. You've got Italian. You've got Spanish. You've got Portuguese. And you've got various forms of German, Black Deutsch, and all the rest of it. Um, so at least six. Uh, and I don't, lingua franca, that's one possible push for why all of a sudden finance becomes so abstract. That's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with the equivalent of a spreadsheet, not a spreadsheet at the time, but the equivalent. And you're dealing with trade in that kind of intellectual level, if you like. And you do numbers, not the languages. So you, you've described here quite a, a clearly a vibrant city, a city where lots going on, a city where information as well as goods are flowing in and out. I wonder um, whether you're able to identify any of the sort of modern concerns that come with cities through your research. So when we talk about a city today, we think about people talk about transport, they talk about house prices, they talk about planning, they talk about street safety. Have you been able to see any of those sorts of things coming through on top of the, of the general global importance of the place? 
Well, I don't want to sound like a Daily Mail editorial, but um, house prices going up was an absolutely vital part of the Antwerp economy. I mean, lots of people went into business because they could do it after selling a couple of properties that had been in the family for some time. Street safety was always a problem. The cobblestones never got replaced in time. There was too much dust around or too much mud. It was always problematic. Um, but the planning of the city was also an issue, a really live issue, towards the end of the century. At first, there was just one extraordinary man called Gilbert von Schoenbecker, who was a sort of developer, a hyper-developer, a sort of monster developer, the Godzilla of, de of developers, who did deals all over the city, got out of them as quickly as possible, and left behind whole new districts of the city. Quite extraordinary that one man could do that. And the city didn't have the politics to control him. So he got on with remaking the shape of Antwerp. And as time went on, people began to think, well, wait a minute, I mean, he's reshaping our city. We really want our city to be something different. And when in the 1570s and 80s, there was a Calvinist Republic of Antwerp, and not coincidentally, they began to smash down a few convents and, and, and church institutions and had the space, they start talking about town planning in surprisingly modern terms. They, they want beauty. They want elegance. They want openness. And they start thinking about some of the things that Antwerp really hadn't thought enough about, like <laughs> how you were going to drain everything and how you were going to get rid of things that you wanted to get rid of. No sewers that were working. Um, you just mentioned there Calvinism. You've talked about heresy a bit as well in this conversation. The 16th century, of course, is, is, the, is the period when we start to see the big clash between Catholicism and Protestantism and, and, and uh, how that you know, racked Europe. What was, what was Antwerp's place in that, in that uh, religious story? As far out of it as they could stay until there was a catastrophe and they couldn't stay out any longer. Uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, what she had was a situation where they were Calvinists, but they were so amazingly discreet that, 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 that nobody was really aware of their existence until all of a sudden they started preaching in the hedges outside Antwerp. And there was an iconoclasm, a moment when the churches were attacked um, in 1556. The point is that people didn't actually fight about religion until quite late in Antwerp, which is an important part of its success. It's not that they thought that there was an alternative to Catholicism. They had processions in the streets for the sacraments. They honored on the Lieve Frau, Our, Our Lady, uh, the Virgin Mary. All of that was absolutely solid Catholic. But at the same time, nobody saw the need to actually beat up people for having the wrong ideas in theology. And people were discreet enough, as they had to be, to, to, to go on with trade, because that was what mattered. Just think of who the traders were. They were Calvinists, they were Lutherans, they were Jews, they were all of the people that were officially disapproved of as heretics. But the heretics were the engine of the city. And that kept Antwerp, to some extent, out of the worst conflicts of the Reformation until the point where the empire insists that actually being a heretic is worse than being a heretic. It's actually les majesté. It's an offence against the crown. So to, to stay out of these debates, was Antwerp a, a well-defended place? Was it 
a military power in any way? Oh, no, the walls were constantly falling down and it never had a navy. It always had to hire ships from from the north. Um, one of the ways Amsterdam made money out of Antwerp in the early days. Uh, and nothing, nothing, no, nothing like that. Antwerp with an army. I mean, it had night watches and it, it had militias, which, which were as efficient as militias ever were. But that wasn't the point at all. That wasn't its power. Its power was very modern. It was information. Now, before we get on to, to the to the final decline, um, I wonder if I'd been able to to wander the streets of Antwerp in the 16th century, would I have seen famous people with famous names? There? <laughs> well, you might or might not have done, depends on which bit you were wandering through. Uh, you'd have seen the Bruegels, of course. Uh, you would have seen Erasmus from time to time. You would have seen... I mean, actually, if you want any of the major... 16th century figures who sort of have some connection with the Netherlands, then then you would have found them somewhere. You'd find Albrecht Dürer, for example, who, who spent a lot of time in Antwerp, actually. Stole quite a lot of information about um, defensive architecture from our Antwerp and didn't acknowledge it when he wrote a book. <laughs> but uh, the, yes, you, you would have seen lots of people. But you would, they would have been a real mix. And so how diverse was the city? Was, was, it, was it a genuine melting plot of people from all over the world? Yes, it was a real melting pot. It had more Africans lived in Antwerp, as far as we know, than in any other European city except Lisbon. And when you remember that Lisbon, um, the African population was extremely visible because for some reason the ferrymen were almost all African. Um, for, Antwerp to, for the Africans in Antwerp to be as visible, it's quite extraordinary. There must have been an awful lot of black people there. Um, you have people from, you have merchants who send people to look after their business in Antwerp. So you have the Genoese worrying about the pictures they'll buy, and you have the Medici's men worrying about the horses they'll buy, and you have the people from, from Spain and from Portugal also worrying about what they'll buy. Um, extraordinary mixture. Absolutely extraordinary. People, a lot of people at the time talked about the number of languages you heard on the streets in, in Antwerp. OK, so a global city with a global population and, and talked about globally by the sound of, of, of what you describe in your book, somewhere that's, that was famous around the world. Oh, it was scandalous around the world. It was completely scandalous. I mean, you have to think of Antwerp in the early 16th century like Oh, I don't know, Paris in the 19th century or New York in the 20th century. No story coming from there was completely incredible. You really believed it first and worried about the details later. Um, it's a story of killer bankers. I mean, one of, one of my problems in the book actually was cutting out the killer bankers. Far too many of them, and really one or two is really quite enough for that species. Um, you have stories of sexual scandal because... Everybody had this sense that somehow Antwerp wasn't following the rules properly and that women were beginning to reinvent who they could be and what they could do. All of these things were happening and they added, and the reputation was extraordinary. And the best thing you could do if you were a merchant travelling in Europe was to go to dinner parties with two really good Antwerp stories. They would get you the attention of everybody at the table. You just had to tell them you were in. Okay, so finally to wrap up, um, uh, how do how do Antwerp's glory years end? You've sort of already mentioned a little bit about it, but just just take us to the to the to the close of the story and, and what happens to the city. It's a very sad story. You've got a city which had managed to work out 
a way of living with the facts of the Reformation, which is quite astonishing. Um, yes, it was Catholic on the surface, a lot of Catholic observance, but people could think and do what they wanted to do. All of that breaks down. It breaks down, first of all, with iconoclasm, with a handful of people running through the streets of Antwerp, smashing up churches and images and statues. When that has happened, the Spanish in Madrid obviously think, right, this can't happen. We can't have this kind of disorder. Right, we are going to send in the troops. They do. There are strong laws against heresy. When the troops mutiny because they haven't been paid, Antwerp all of a sudden can choose again. But now Antwerp has to make a choice, Catholic or Calvinist, and chooses to be Calvinist. And the Calvinist Republic is set up. And that, of course, the Spanish have to fight tooth and nail, which they do. So you end up with a city which had managed somehow to opt out of the worst of war and the worst of conflict, suddenly being thrust right back into the middle of it. And it's burnt and it's ruined and it's miserable. And it's a terrible end to what has been an ab absolutely glorious story. And, and the final point is, as you make in your book, is that that, that ending, that burning, has uh, perhaps sort of tarnished our knowledge of it because uh, the records were burnt and people haven't been able to study it as much as they might do. So perhaps Antwerp today isn't as famous as it might be for the role that you uh, that you see it had in the, in the 16th century. But I mean, obviously, I think that Antwerp should be very, very, very famous indeed. It's not just the destruction of the records. It's the fact that when you go to Antwerp now, you see it as Rubens' city, which is a 17th century, not a 16th century city. Uh, you see it as a place of sort of the remains of a kind of imperial glory, which is really not what it was in its true glory years. That was Michael Pye. His book, Antwerp, The Glory Years is published in the UK on the 5th of August and in the US with the title Europe's Babylon on the 7th of September. Thanks to Esme McNamara for additional interview research for this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. On Friday, I'll be speaking to Nick Hayes about the history of trespass. Music.